Well, I, I think as many of you um, are aware, um, I tell stories all the time about my childhood. I tell stories about where I grew up. I tell stories about my past. Um, um, Y'all know that my, where I am from as a, as a child, I am from where? Myrtle Beach. I heard Myrtle Beach affectionately referred to as Dirty Myrtle, and I can say that because I'm from there. Um, I love it. Um, but but here's, here's, a little, here's a little bit of a, a secret I don't really talk about much, but uh, we moved to Myrtle Beach when I was in middle school, but actually before that, I grew up in Florence, South Carolina. Anybody ever heard of Florence? Anybody ever driving down I-95 and past a little town called Florence? We called it, we called it Flow Town when I was growing up. Uh, Florence, and, and here's one of, my, one of my most fond memories of my childhood is when I was in grade school and one year at Christmas, my parents uh, bought me a basketball goal. I, I remember we didn't grow up with much, honestly. Uh, m- much of my childhood was you know, trying to live from paycheck to paycheck. Grew up on a little street um, in kind of South Florence and South Irby Street uh, called Hutchinson Avenue. I grew up at 218 Hutchinson Avenue. You could Google it if you wanted to. 218 Hutchinson Avenue, and it's a little, um, little brick A-frame house built, I guess, in the 60s or the 70s, and I can still remember walking into the backyard and where I went every, every day as a child to play, and I can still see the four-foot chain-link fence all the way around the edge. I can still see the gate at the back and the, the little bridge that went across the, the back ditch into the woods that were behind my home, but this basketball goal that I got one year... Um, our street wasn't really conducive for setting the basketball goal up on the street. And then my driveway was really in shambles because of all the pine trees and the roots of the pine trees. I had one of those driveways that was all kind of crumbled and bumpy, which didn't really allow for the bouncing of a basketball. So my only resort, my only option was to go into the backyard under one of the large pine trees in the corner of the yard. And literally, we put the basketball goal against the fence in the yard, on, on, on the grass in the corner. Now, as a little kid, I didn't know anything different. Um, I, just, I just thought that's what every child did. I thought every child put the basketball goal on the grass. I just thought that's what you um, did. By the way, uh, kids are resilient, just, just if you were wondering. you know, Kids are resilient. Kids will live up to whatever conditions that you put them in. Hopefully they're good conditions, but kids are resilient. And I remember day after day after day with my basketball goal and that little uh, basketball and the basketball goal and, and bouncing that and playing hour upon hour, day after day after day, to the point where, where I was playing essentially should have been concrete because the entire thing was flat, all the grass was completely gone, and it was a packed down dirt, and I played out there every single day, and I remember having, every time I came into the house, I'd have to wash my hands because my hands were literally dark brown because of the dirt where I was been, been playing basketball. Now, now here's what, what happened a couple years after that. Um, I would graduate from uh, the basketball court in the backyard uh, to um, the local YMCA. The local YMCA had an outdoor basketball court and had a a concrete uh, court and then it had one of those big steel backboards, you know, with the heavy, large rims and the chain nets. Can I, anybody play basketball with a chain net? Anybody go, you hear what I'm saying? If you've played basketball with a chain net, you know what's going on. And then after that, uh, then after that, I, w- I would graduate on into in, an indoor court 
an indoor court that, that was actually a, a better surface. And then they had wooden uh, backboards and actually cloth nets. I was like, wow, this net is made of cloth. And then I would, later in high school playing ball, I would uh, get to play in a stadium court with hardwood floors and fiberglass backboards and a spring-loaded rim because of all the times I dunked on the goal. <laughs> the spring-loaded rim and... Now here's, what's, now here, here's, here's what you know if, you, if you've grown up playing ball. If you started playing ball in the stadium court, you had a hard time taking your game outside. If you grew up in an air-conditioned court and you grew up there wasn't any wind and, and, and all the conditions and all the circumstances were right, you had a hard time taking your game outdoors onto the concrete court into the chain nets and so on and so forth. But if, if you grew up outside playing ball, you could take your game anywhere. You could take your game anywhere. And I just remember as a kid, like, uh, knew what it was like to play with a little bit of a breeze. You ever shot a free throw with the breeze flowing? I know, know what it's like to be in that, and, and you, would, you would recognize, you would learn that you can take your game to anywhere if you learned how to play outside. Here's what we're going to see today from the scriptures and where we are, is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the central message of Christianity, the good news of Jesus, the good news, the gospel can play ball anywhere. It can play ball anywhere. And we're going to see today that not only has the good news been reaching the poor, not only has the good news been reaching the religious system, not only has it been reaching the civil system, not only has it entered the, mark play, the marketplace, but it's even going to reach the academics and the intellectual elites. And the thing about the gospel is that it can play ball anywhere. There's no place the gospel cannot touch. There's no place the gospel cannot reach. There's no place the gospel cannot impact, which is good news for us which means there isn't any area of our lives, there isn't any area of our past, there isn't any area of our struggle or our challenge or our mindset or our body or our relationships or our finances or our career that the gospel cannot reach and that the gospel cannot touch. It's a gospel that can play ball um, anywhere. It has that much power. I love what um, the pastor, the 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon would say. He, he would say this in his very old English way. He would say this, the gospel can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion? They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion? What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Here's the title for today. It's this, Unleash the Gospel. Unleash the Gospel. Just unleash it. Take it off the leash. You don't do that with your dog, but unleash the gospel. Just let, let, it, let it go, and it will accomplish its work. 
in its own strength, in its own power, has the ability to accomplish what it needs to accomplish on its own, unleash the gospel. We're in Acts chapter 17 today. We're in a series walking through the entire book of Acts, which has been rather enjoyable and rather fun. Today in Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's journey, part of his road trip, where he's sharing the good news across the across the Greco-Roman world, and this is his second of three missionary journeys, and today we find him and his team in the city of Thessalonica. He's specifically here with Silas and others, and he, in the beginning of the chapter, has been teaching Jesus and reasoning with Jesus. It even says that he's been proving to them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in the synagogue for three weeks. And then quite a commotion happens because of this message, because of this good news of what Jesus, I'm sorry, rather what Paul has been sharing regarding Jesus. Now here's what happens. Here's the response in verse five. After a large number of people, it says, join Paul and Silas. It says this in verse five. But the Jews were jealous. Oh, there, Paul's church was getting bigger than, than their church. The Jews were jealous. They didn't like it. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So now the, Judaiz the Judaizers are oppressing and fighting against what is happening, verse six. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities. So they, they can't find Paul and Silas, so they grab Jason, one, one of the disciples, and they, they bring him up and others before the, the city authorities take, takes them downtown. And it says they're shouting this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is a, quite the declaration. This is, this is quite the, the, the announcement that, that these religious leaders are making of the Jesus followers. That they, These guys are turning the world upside down. They've been turning the world upside down, and now they've come here also, it says in verse 7. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, trying to appeal to Caesar and to Rome. And it says, saying, and this is what they have been saying, this is the... This is the accusation against the Jesus followers. They've been saying that there is another king, Jesus. I love that um, the way that these Jewish leaders summarize the message of what um, these disciples have been saying, the, what, the way they summarize their message was simply that they are saying there is another king, Jesus. And this is the good news. This is the gospel message that there is another king and his name is Jesus and he's a better king. Church, can anybody testify that he's a better king today? He is a better king. He's always a better king. And this was the message of these early disciples. And so what would happen is that Paul and Silas, they kind of leave every time they're seeing progress happen and they get threatened and they have to leave and they go to another area. They go to, to the city of Berea and the same thing happens. A lot of people come and they trust Christ. And then the Jewish leaders, they come and they agitate again. And then Paul's sent away. They're like, Paul, you got to get out of here. Or they're going to kill you. So Paul actually flees. And then it says that he finds himself in the city of Athens and then it says he's waiting in Athens and look in verse 16 it says this now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens his spirit was provoked within him his spirit was disturbed his, his spirit was agitated something did not sit right in Paul's spirit it was provoked within him as he saw the city was 
full of idols. An idol is worshiping anything that isn't God. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and then get this, not only in the synagogue, but and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Verse 18, and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, let me explain this um, section, uh, make a few um, applications, and then we'll dive back into the end of the chapter. Here's the beautiful thing. Here's the amazing thing about what Paul's doing, about what the gospel is doing, is that it touches everything. It, it, it reaches everywhere. It, it can play ball anywhere. It's in the, he's in the synagogue. He's reaching, reaching the religious system. It's been reaching the civil system. And, and then he takes it here to the marketplace, which is just the, the open area of the city of Athens, which was the place for exchanging goods and services. And the apostle Paul is telling people, he's telling people about Jesus and what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He's this, he's that. He's a new king. He's better than Caesar. He's better than this. He's better than anything that you ever had. And then, and then it says there were some philosophers who took him and heard about this new teaching that he was saying and then brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus historically was a place just outside of Athens up on a rock where the leading intellectual elites of the day and the philosophers would come around and they would sit and they would hear one another give of speeches about their own ideas and their own philosophies. And guess what? The apostle Paul gets an invitation. The Apostle Paul gets an invitation. They actually bring him to the Areopagus, and he's going to be able to share who Jesus is and what he has done. By the way, don't you want like easy evangelistic opportunities like that? He's like, I wish people would invite me and ask me to come and tell people about Jesus. Now, here's, here, here's, here's what I want to do. Um, let me make a few points um, based on what has been happening in the story that I think will be um, helpful and, and beneficial for you. First of all, um, we see that um, the message that they are declaring, the central message of these disciples, the central message of the church is that there is another king, that there is another king and his name is Jesus. What you and I have to recognize is that you could argue the central message of the Bible is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God, that God is a king and that God rules and that he reigns and that he is inviting people into a spiritual kingdom, living under his rule and his reign, operating in, under relationship with him. And the message of the good news of the gospel, you could say a part of this message is that Jesus is a king. Now, now here's, 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 the first, here's the first principle that I want to share with you. It's this. It's the principle of spiritual kingship. It's the principle of spiritual kingship. And, and if you are going to make any significant spiritual progress in your life as a Jesus follower, assuming that you are a Jesus follower, you will have to understand the principle of spiritual uh, kingship. Now, historically, um, we all recognize that societies throughout history have been ruled by kings. And a king was responsible to rule the kingdom. Uh, the word kingdom 
um, actually is, um, comes from the two words, dominion and king put together. It's the dominion of the king. It's a kingdom. And dominion means the power to rule. It means ownership. It means control. The king would have held the highest position of preeminence in the governmental order, and it would have been the position of rule and authority and power and sovereignty, and the king ultimately governs the affairs of the land. Now, here's what we know from Scripture. Hear me closely. Not only does every society have a physical king, every individual has a spiritual king. Every individual has a spiritual king. And the principle of kingship, it's not just something out there. We're talking about something that is in here. You see, every single one of us has a spiritual king living on the inside. And what is that thing? Well, it's, it's the thing in your life today. And I want you actually, as, as we process through this, I want you to think about what this is for you. It's, it's the thing that assumes the highest position in your life. It's the thing that is preeminent. It's the thing that you could say it's, it's on the throne of your heart. And because it holds the position of preeminence in your life, because it holds the position of preeminence in your, your heart, it rules and it reigns. It rules and it reigns. It's, it's a thing that holds authority and power over you. And it's sovereign, you could say, meaning that it, it dictates what you do. It dictates where you go. It dictates what you think and how you behave. You could even say that it owns you and it controls you. And here's what a king does. A king commands and a king demands. And ultimately, whatever is the king in your life, you submit to it and you let it rule and control you because you've given it significant power in your life. Here's the reality is that most of us may live the entirety of our lives with something that rules us on the inside that is not for our good. You can live your entire life and be controlled and be consumed, be dominated by something on the inside that actually is not for your good. It's your spiritual king. It's, it's the king on the, the inside. Can, can I ask you a, a personal question today? What is the spiritual king in your life? What is the spiritual king in your life? And I actually want to give you some time to think about that. Like, I actually, can I step down here? I actually want you to think about what, what it is that is in your life that really, that really owns you, that really controls you. You could even say the thing that possesses you. Um, for some of us, let's, let's talk about some of the easy ones. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's, maybe it's a thing. Maybe, maybe it's something that you can touch. Maybe it's something, and to, totally, if you, if you have a, 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 an issue or a problem with some substances, we're not making light of that. But you understand what it's like for that thing to c control you and to own you. 
for, for some of us, perhaps um, it's money. Uh, for some of us, perhaps it is a relationship. For some of us, and I think this is probably the majority of us, for some of it's, us, it's an idea. It's an idea. It, it's a thing that you live by. It's a thing that you are ruled by. It's a thing that you operate from. It's a mindset, you could call it. It's a way of thinking that you can call it. And hear me clearly, if Jesus doesn't consume your mind and lead your mind, you're always going to be enslaved to a thinking and a pattern of thinking that actually isn't good for you. you, you all, all of us are, are, the way that we think, the, 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 way, the way that we operate in, in our minds, that we're, we're worshiping something. We're, we're letting something rule us. We're letting something control us. And if that thing is not Jesus, it will ultimately wreck you. It will ultimately ruin you. And the thing about a spiritual kingship is that all of us have to make the decision on what's going to rule us, what's going to own us, what's going to control us, what is going to lead us, what's going to command us. We all have to make that decision. See, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is when something other than Jesus is our king. Can I be any more straightforward than that? Like, is that simple enough for everybody? Um, that, that's what I, idolatry is. And here's, here's, here's the reality. If your child is your king, then that's idolatry. Like, if your home is your king, then that's idolatry. If your 401k is your king, that's idolatry. And any time you have an idol or a king that isn't Jesus, it'll wreck you. It'll ruin you. It'll destroy you. Amen. And so the pattern of God's people and the, the message of the whole story of the Bible is actually finding Jesus as our king. And we couldn't have said it any better, but getting rid of our idols as we worshiped and as we sang earlier, getting rid of those things. And the message of the Bible is that Jesus is our king and there's some things in our life that don't belong anymore. There's some things in our life that don't need to be there anymore. And see, a significant part of our spiritual journey is the ongoing process, I said ongoing process, of removing things from the throne of our lives and putting God back onto the throne of our lives. Amen. And that's true of the, anybody, somebody, Poor, rich, black, white, educated, uneducated, whatever, whatever zip code you live, that's true of everybody, is that the ongoing process of our spiritual life is removing things from the throne and putting God back into his rightful place as God over our lives. It's removal. I call this holy subtraction. <laughs> holy subtraction. Oh, man, we live with some things in our lives, don't we? We we. We live with some things and we let some things rule and operate. And we let, we let some things, as Pastor Chris said a few weeks ago, have real estate in our lives. Some things that need to be removed, some holy subtraction that needs to take place. Where is it in your life today uh, that holy subtraction needs to happen? Where is it in your life that you need to get rid of some things? Get rid of some, some ways of operating, some ways of thinking, some, some, some things that have been harmful and detrimental to you. And one of the things that can be so hard about overcoming the past is disassociating with that which used to be your normal. That used to, to, to be your norm. Um, I thought about it this, this way this, this week. Um, how many of you just out of curiosity, um, by a show of hands, 
typically when you drive to work or when you come home from work, you typically take the same route home from work every day. Just anybody out of curiosity? See, that, that's normal. Uh, just uh, so if you're, you're wondering, uh, you don't have a problem. Well, you do have a problem, but that's not one of your problems. Um, um, that, that's normal. See, see all of us um, have figured out um, which path and which way is most natural for us, which is most convenient for us, what seems like the right way, which seems like the right way of living, which seems like the right way, I'm already going into my metaphor, which seems like the right way of driving home. What happens in life is once we realize that a, a, a particular pattern or path is detrimental for us, we have to learn new paths. We have to learn new ways home. And isn't that hard? What happens, you get in your car, you just naturally, you just drive the, the way that you do every day. You just, you just, you just drive the way, that, the way that you go. Spiritually speaking, what do we do? We just, we just naturally, we respond to the things that, that we've been operating from, the normal that we've had in our lives. But here's what has to happen spiritually. You gotta figure out a new way home. You gotta figure out a new way of, of driving. You, got, you, gotta, you gotta get rid, you gotta subtract other ways of thinking and living and operating, and you gotta figure out a new way home. Oh man, and it's, gosh. Y'all try it this week. You try driving a different way home this week. It's hard. Um, it, it's, it's hard. Your, your body and your, your mindset, your brain is so in tune to doing things over and over again. When we talk about holy subtraction, we're not talking about something that's easy. We're talking about some things that have happened in our past. We're talking about some relationships. We're talking about some experiences. We're talking about some things that were said to us even years ago that we need to reroute in our mind and in our brain. See, the, the, the process of spiritual kingship or the principle of spiritual kingship means that, well, that Jesus have the position of king and preeminence in our life. And uh, we live in accordance to what, what he says and how he would rule and how he would, would lead us. And we recognize that anything other than him in on the throne is ultimately idolatry, which is ultimately detrimental for us. And here's, here's what else that we, we see from the scriptures today in, in this, this section. It's this, I'll say it this way. Uh, the gospel turns things upside down. Amen. The gospel turns things upside down. Um, the good news is if you walked in here um, in pain today, if you walked in here with patterns today, if you walked in here with behaviors or with past or whatever, the gospel turns things upside down. And here's how it turns up things upside down. It's by surrendering to King Jesus. That's how spiritual transformation happens in your life. All these people, the reason that they were turning the society upside down is because people were coming in to right relationship with God. They were coming into right relationship with him and they were receiving him and they were reorienting their lives and they were getting rid of idols. They were getting rid of things that were harmful and detrimental to them. And they were now living in relationship and in accordance with, with Jesus. And when you do that, it turns things upside down. The, the gospel can turn your marriage upside down today. And I mean in a positive sense. Um, it can turn your mindset upside down, can, can turn your relationships, can turn uh, everything in, in, in your life upside down. Which means, you know, if, if you used to be insecure, the gospel can make you secure. If you used to be hopeless, the gospel can make you hopeful. If you felt powerless, the gospel can make you feel powerful. If you lived to, used to live in bondage, the gospel can make you free. If you used to live in, 
and, and hate, the gospel can make you a person of love. If you used to be a racist, you can become a gracist. It's the way that the gospel works. The gospel transforms us from the inside out. It turns things upside down. And I'll say this as well. What the gospel touches, it transforms. What the gospel touches, it transforms. Here's the, I, I got a feeling, I, and, and, and I could be wrong on this. I got a feeling we got a lot of people that are not being touched by the gospel spiritually. We, we perhaps got a lot of people in churches, a lot of people in our society that have not been touched by the gospel or are not being touched and transformed by the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when you experience Jesus in, the, in right relationship with him as your king, when you come into right relationship with him, he transforms things in you. He changes, he changes you. And th this is how every single person must enter into a relationship with God. It's not arms folded, arms crossed, telling God that what he is and he should be glad that he has and you're a good person and you've done this. And, oh man, that's not how it works. That's never how spiritual progress works. How does spiritual progress work? Spiritual progress happens when you, you, you come to God and you admit that you need him. And you admit that you're dependent. And you admit that you have done it wrong. And you admit that you have failed. You, you, you admit that these actions and these behaviors and these decisions have been destructive to you and to the people that are around you. And you need God. Wow. When that happens, it transforms you. It transforms you. It gives you new thinking. It gives you new heart. It gives you new, it gives you new ways of operation. Can I ask you today, what is the nature of your relationship with God? Can I ask you today, what is the, how is it that you are relating to God? If you had to do a physical posture right now of the way that you are operating in relationship to God, how would that posture be? Would it be arms crossed? Would it be turning your back to him? Or would it be on your knees before him, begging for his mercy and that you need him? The problem with American Christians is we feel like we got it figured out. I got a job, I got everything that I need. We're living in luxurious culture. I know that many people are struggling with hard things, but historically speaking, we're living in the lap of luxury. And it's hard for us to have the right kind of posture and relationship to um, God. Now here's how, here's how I, wanna, I wanna close. Uh, the Apostle Paul, we've got a few speeches in the Bible, in the New Testament, where um, one of the church leaders shares um, a message and one of the authors of the Bible records that speech or that message or that sermon for us. It happens a few times. And here is um, one of the uh, places in, um, in the Bible where, uh, where we see one of these speeches that is recorded. And I think the way that the Apostle Paul articulates the good news, I think will actually be powerful for you today. I think it'll be transformative for you today. And so I want you to listen to, to what he says in, in verse 22. And this is kind of how his speech goes. He says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus in front of these philosophers, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's interesting that their problem wasn't religion or being religious. Their problem was kingship. 
I perceive that in every way you're very religious for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Uh, Commentators tell us that the reason that they had an idol that said to the unknown God is they wanted to make sure that they had all their bases covered in case they missed one. Hey, here's one to the unknown God. And Paul says, I got, I got news for you. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. And then he says this, this is his message. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. For, he goes a little gangster mode here. He actually, he quotes their own authors. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. This verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Uh, You're way off. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That word means to turn. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There's a day coming, he says, a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed, speaking of Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If I had to re, if I had to put this in my own words, based on the points that he's saying, this is kind of what I would say. Hear me when I say this. There is one God. His name is Jesus. There is one God. He is the creator of all things. He's the creator. He is Lord. He is king. He is ruler and sovereign over all. He is not the product of human imagination or human fabrication. He is not in a position of need from humanity. Humanity is in a position of need from him. And life was designed to know and experience God. And you can know him and have a relationship with him. But you must turn from your ways. Abandon all other pursuits. Surrender yourself to him and embrace his rule over your life. Because judgment is coming and opposition to God will not endure. But it's your decision. Either surrender to Jesus or experience judgment. And he receives all who surrender to him and he forgives all who come to him. And like Christ, all who are in him will resurrect to new life. Today, I want to close in this way, is that there are only two ways to respond. Only two ways to respond. The first is surrender. Respond to God and surrender, or you respond to God by shunning him. Surrender or shun. Shun him. Keep him at arm's length, thinking that you're okay without him, thinking that you can do it your own way. Today, I just have to imagine that there may be some places in our lives that are not surrendered to God. Today, I have to remember there might be some hearts today in the room that are not surrendered uh, to God. Um, 
And today I want to leave you, or lead you rather, in an, an opportunity to take a play. Maybe it's a place in your life. Maybe it's a place in your heart that you feel the need to surrender to God. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's your entire heart. Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, in Jesus' name, uh, we, we want to take a posture of surrender right now and, and demonstrate some surrender to you. Some, maybe some things in our lives that we've put on the throne that are not you. Maybe some areas, maybe some, maybe our heart that um, is not controlled by you.